Victims of one of the largest data breaches to ever hit the federal government are one step closer to a payout, more than seven years in the making. A federal judge finalized $63 million for victims of that 2015 Office of Personnel Management data breach. That breach compromised the personally identifiable information of about 22 million current and former federal employees and also some federal job applicants. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins us with the latest. So 22 million people, $63 million, everybody gets two bucks, and then the lawyers get about 20 million or what's going on here, Jory? Well, this isn't going to be a major payday for anyone. At minimum, the lawyers for the plaintiffs say that OPM data breach victims who can demonstrate a financial loss here, they can receive as little as $700 as the minimum payment that folks will be getting. But some people can get as a maximum a $10,000 payment. So this is a real wide variance between uh, what people can expect to receive from this. Well, I'm trying to figure out the math there, but anyway, we'll take your word for it. And it's better than a jab in the eye with a sharp object, I guess, to get 700 bucks or 10000 But just review for us what exactly happened way back in 2015. So rewind back to 2015. OPM was hit with this pretty unprecedented data breach where it affected the records, the background investigation records of current, former, and prospective federal employees and contractors. And this is a pretty major data breach from the perspective of data breaches, which of course are quite common these days, but it was a watershed moment for OPM. It led to the resignation of then OPM Director Catherine Archuleta and still kind of looms large over the federal government when it comes to cybersecurity. All right. And let's go more into the settlements that we just mentioned a moment ago. There's a minimum of $700. And tell us more about that. And also review the fact that at the time, employees who were affected also got free access to credit monitoring services also. Right. Those credit monitoring services to address that part of it first, those are still ongoing. Congress, through annual appropriations bills, have kept that in effect for at least 2026, September of that year. However, the judge did say that at some point, OPM can't keep these credit monitoring services for free in place forever. And while it's not necessarily up to the judge here, Judge Amy Berman Jackson, she said that from the perspective of the federal government, from the perspective of Congress, eventually those credit monitoring services should lapse. As far as the other part of the question, yeah, it's unclear, you know, what it will take for someone to get, say, $700 versus the $10,000, the two extremes here. But this is a settlement for people who can demonstrate a financial loss as a result of that OPM data breach. Now, for people that still want to get in on this, is it too late to join that class action suit? No, there's still time. They have until December of 23rd to file a claim to join the class action lawsuit. About 2,000 individuals have already done just that. Now, of course, we are dealing with a population of about 22 million individuals, and this is not quite close to that by any means, but, you know, about 2 million individuals have signed on to those OPM uh, credit monitoring services, so that gives you a sense of maybe the upper end of people who might join the class action. All right, and there were some objections to the settlement, too, that you encountered. Yeah, in this uh, final hearing at the federal court that I attended, Regarding this lawsuit, there are about 14 objections, again, out of this population of 20,000, so not very many objections, but there were some individuals affected by this breach that said that this will provide lifelong damage to their financial affairs and that they want those credit monitoring services provided by OPM to 
keep going well into the 2026 deadline and beyond. And we already said that that's kind of up to Congress at this point in terms of extending that through annual appropriations bills. And other people said that it's really impossible and unfair for them to calculate their losses seven years after initially finding out about this OPM data breach. And to our knowledge, there hasn't been much fallout from it. I mean, people are worried about the potential for the data breach, but we haven't really seen much evidence that that data was used in any nefarious way, have we, in all these years? No, no. I mean, that's kind of an interesting wrinkle of it is that, you know, there's some suspicion that this was a nation state attack by perhaps actors from the Chinese government. But in terms of a macro level impact on that, that has not been clear. But of course, with the level of information that was breached here, a lot of concern about what that could mean for someone's financial well-being. And also the American Federation of Government Employees, they're one of the plaintiffs. They've weighed in on this. What are they saying? They have, and they've tried to get the word out about people who are eligible to join the class action. They call this a significant victory for rank-and-file federal employees. And at this point, between now and the December deadline, their mission is to get people aware of the class action lawsuit, aware of the website, telling affected people the next steps here, and trying to get as many people onto the class action lawsuit as possible. And earlier in the interview, I had said that, yes, $63 million divided by $22 million works out to $3 a person. As you explained, only 20,000 people are signed on, and that's how the seven hundred to 10,000 is possible. But the more people that sign up, then the less the payout on average, right? Right. Yeah, that's the simple division there. The, the population of the class action versus the finite amount of dollars here, the more people who join, the less of the settlement they'll each individually receive. Got it. And you mentioned that we hinted at the legacy of this for OPM and for cybersecurity and for, I guess, in some level, the reputation of the government as a keeper of information. Tell us more about what you found in this latest. Yeah. Talk about the legacy seven years later here. We have seen the federal government and OPM specifically be pretty careful about uh, who and how they share their data with. Case in point, we recently heard this summer at an AGA conference, Doug Glenn, who's OPM's chief financial officer, he was saying that colleges and universities keep showing up at their doorstep wanting to do research and analysis on the volume of federal workforce data that they have. And that's for OPM, a pretty great deal, but they're, of course, wary of sharing their data with people. And Glenn was saying that OPM is going to extraordinary lengths to ensure that any data sharing agreements that they do hash out with these colleges and universities, that they're rock solid and that there's no chance of this data being compromised. This is free research to us, but we got to navigate those risks. And so what we're talking about non-disclosure agreements. We're talking about signing a, a gre- other agreements with uh, colleges and universities that, hey, if anything gets out, it's on you. You, know, you are responsible for this data. Um, and then also we're thinking about, hey, what do we need to do to, I don't want to say dummy down the data, but to desensitize it so that maybe some of the uh, details Uh, are fuzzed up a bit so that some of the connections that shouldn't be made can't be made. And that's Doug Glenn, who, again, is OPM's chief financial officer. In the meantime, if you want a piece of that dough, you got to sign up for the class action suit, right, Jory? Yeah. Yeah. The uh, the website on that is uh, opmdatabreach.com. And that's the website where that will point you in the direction of, you know, next steps, how to join and 
how to get in touch with the lawyers that are involved here. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. 
Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, 
that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.